Hello, Jacob's Well Online. My name is David Mortimer, and I'm one of the overseers at Jacob's Well Church. Today we are in week six of our travels with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. We are looking at worth it, worth it to receive criticism. I hope you enjoy this. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood. A neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Hello. It's good to be with you again. Greetings, Jacob's Well neighbors. Hello, theater neighbors. Hello also online and podcast neighbors. My name is David Mortimer and I'm one of the overseers at Jacob's Well Church. Overseers work with staff and governance to serve the church. Today is week six of Worth It. Last week, we traveled with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians and Pastor Grant shared with us a message on Worth It to Repent. In two weeks, Shua, our student pastor, shared with us a message on worth it to reconcile. Today is worth it to endure criticism. Has anyone here grown up with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or familiar with the program? Ah, I see some hands. Good. (laughs) And for the benefit of younger folks... Um, This was a program hosted by Fred Rogers that ran for over three decades on public television. It was geared for preschool kids ages two through five. It started in 1968. It's just a 30-minute program. Fred Rogers hosted the program. He had puppets in the neighborhood of make-believe. He had special guests. He had interviews. He even did tours. And... He became such an amazing television personality and celebrity that one of his sweaters hangs in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. A lot of people don't realize that Fred Rogers was also a pastor. He was ordained in the Presbyterian Church. And Fred Rogers, when he was a young man, had an experience with criticism And this experience changed, was so meaningful, it changed the outlook of his life and ministry. It happened back in the early 1960s. He was in seminary in a class called homiletics. And homiletics is preaching class, teaches you how to correctly handle the word of God, teaches young pastors to be able to organize and outline, communicate, proclamation, evangelism, and keep an audience's attention. So this class professor encouraged the students to go out and see a world-class teacher and preacher in New England in a pretty famous pulpit. So Fred and his classmates went to this church service one Sunday. And when it was time for the message, the person that got up into the pulpit was not the senior pastor. Kind of like today not Paul. 
So Fred was dashed. He was like, well, I've seen senior, you know, I've seen supply pastures before. They're like B-string or C-string folks. And, you know, maybe he'll be okay. But he wasn't. He wasn't well organized. He didn't speak well. And when it was finally over, mercifully over, as Fred would later tell the story, he turned to his neighbor next to him to commiserate with how awful that sermon was. And before he could say a word, he saw tears streaming down his friend's face. And she said, that was just what I needed to hear. Just what I needed to hear. Fred Rogers was astonished at his reaction to the sermon and her reaction. It seemed like the Holy Spirit had taken those words that were disorganized, even incoherent, and spoke to her heart. And as he reflected on the experience, he decided what had happened there was that he came in judgment, whereas his friend came in need. This is an example of how criticism can inhibit the work of God, can keep us from hearing God's word, can even obscure the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can hear God speaking. Criticism can be hurtful, it can be unfair, it can be unfounded. However, the Apostle Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians that criticism can be used by God. Paul shows us that it was worth it, worth it to endure, even welcome, and to give. Just so we're all on the same page, the definition of criticism comes from the old Greek, the ancient Greek word krino, which means judge. Think of an unelected robe lawyer on the Supreme Court, a judge. So when we criticize, we are acting as a judge to value or interpret. And it doesn't need to be negative. It could be saying positive things. But when we criticize and we evaluate both merits and faults, this is where criticism gets a little complicated because those merits or faults might be real or they might be imagined. And this is where discernment is needed. Can you say criticism? I knew you could. So for you younger folks, that's a Mr. Rogers neighborhood joke. So how do we respond to criticism? I think most of us, probably like me, hide under the table, run, uh, cringe, melt. You know, criticism's generally not welcome, something we don't welcome in our lives. And a lot of people view it as a kind of suffering. Sometimes when it's dished out, it's hurtful. We can take things personally. It demands change. And change is difficult. Next to Jesus, I think the person most criticized in the whole New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Hands down, he was a lightning rod for criticism. So Paul shows us how to respond and even welcome criticism in our own lives as we follow Christ. 
I want to begin by asking you a question. How do you respond to criticism? The biblical response to criticism is that it's worth it. We expect it, we value it, we consider it, and we even plan for it. Before we look at how Paul responded to criticism, let's just go over a little bit of history in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. We see a lot of the relationship, a little segment of it in the book of 2 Corinthians, if you've been reading through that. But it's complicated. It's just like the message several months ago, family, it's complicated. This church-Paul um, relationship in Corinth was complicated. This is seven years, three visits from Paul, and four letters. We have two of them, First and Second Corinthians. So Paul established the church. He was there evangelizing for a year and a half, but then he had to leave. He was doing a lot of other things. And briefly, between A.D. 52 and 53, Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians. It was called the previous letter. We don't have a copy of that. Next, Paul was, I think, in Ephesus, and a delegation of three people came from the Corinth church because they had a letter for him, and they had some questions. They were needing to know, was celibacy better than marriage? Was meat offered to idols okay? Because, you know, it was on sale, and it's so wasteful to let that stuff just go. And were some spiritual gifts more important than others? And lastly, how do we go about collecting for the Jerusalem Church Relief Fund? So Paul responds to this. These three people that delivered this letter probably were waiting around to get this letter to deliver back. And Paul responded, it's our book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul responds, but as this letter goes back to the Corinth church, Paul starts hearing other things through unofficial sources about this church. They're having a hard time becoming Christ followers. They didn't have a Jewish background. Most of them were Greeks. And so they had a time adjusting to the new Christ-centered set of values. What Paul was hearing were some pretty disturbing things. Incest, lawsuits, members continuing to engage the services of local prostitutes, idolatry, and drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. This was a tough church. Paul's letter of correction, 1 Corinthians, seemed to have little effect. So the relationship deteriorated, and it led to a painful visit sometime in the summer of A.D. 54. So it was painful because when Paul was there, probably while he was even speaking, someone in the congregation publicly insulted him and challenged his authority, demanding proof that Christ was speaking through him. And the church, they were silent. They just kind of sat on their hands, kind of like Rex and Toy Story. Don't like conflict. So after issuing a strong rebuke, Paul returned to Ephesus. But then Paul wrote a severe letter. And this letter we don't have. This letter was intended to avoid another painful visit. 
So he called upon this church to punish that individual who had challenged him. And it was a difficult letter. Paul said that he wrote it out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears. So this severe letter or painful letter was delivered by Titus. Poor Titus had the job of bringing news like this to this church. So Paul became anxious about, he wasn't hearing anything back about the response to this painful letter. And then finally, he met Titus, and there was good news and bad news. The good news was they punished that person and showed their loyalty to Paul and his being an apostle. The bad news was on several fronts. The Corinthian church were charging him with being, saying one thing about a visit and then not showing up. They were a little offended at that. Second, Paul was being attacked by a group of itinerant Christian Jewish preachers. And these preachers accused Paul, saying he wasn't really a pastor or an evangelist. He had no letters of recommendation. He didn't preach the gospel for pay, you know, legitimate evangelists would preach for pay. Paul lacked charisma, probably a germ of truth there. He didn't work miracles. He was also not an effective speaker, which is also probably true from other records we have, just like that preacher that Fred Rogers heard. He was not an effective speaker. So when you come right down to it, Paul was a big talker in his letters, but in person, he amounted to a big nothing burger. Paul responds to these charges in 2 Corinthians, the book that we have. So Paul made his third and final visit to Corinth, and after this letter, things seemed to be going pretty well. They seemed to receive the letter. He stayed for three months. And the contribution to the poor, the Satan's in Jerusalem, was finally made. And ironically, 40 years later, the bishop of Rome, Clement, had sent another letter to the same church with a lot of the same problems and the same issues. So it was an, a needy church, the church in Corinth. So the people criticizing Paul, who were they? They're not named But what they were saying is certainly described. They boasted about their greater spirituality. They were doing miracles. They had visions and revelations, signs and wonders and miracles. Paul, in contrast, didn't. But they had letters of recommendation. Paul had none. They were actually claiming credit for Paul's work. And so the difficult thing was that they were right there in Corinth with those people And Paul was far, far away. So he describes these people in this church as super apostles, which is kind of like saying power preachers. What they were preaching, Paul said, they were peddling the word of God for profit. They were false apostles, deceitful workmen, and get this, servants of Satan. So when criticism gets this pointed, servants of Satan, that's kind of when we sit up. Servants of Satan who are out to enslave and exploit the Corinthians. At issue 
was not Paul and his reputation. At issue was how the gospel of Christ was being portrayed, the appropriate witness to the gospel. They were actually preaching another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And this had to be corrected. They were leading people astray. And they were not emphasizing Jesus as a suffering servant. They were, as Shua pointed out two weeks ago, they were preaching a prosperity message. One that saw Paul's insults and hardships and difficulties as evidence that he was doing something wrong. So they had a whole different gospel. Paul had to restate and recenter this church on the gospel that was preached to them from the beginning the resurrection of Jesus. So by contrast, the false apostles, Paul models a ministry of servanthood, which is very different than what they were doing. Paul writes, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. This is the heart of Christian ministry. Weakness in the message of the cross and the central image of Paul's ministry is also central. That's a central theme of this book of 2 Corinthians. Divine power in weakness. Paul writes, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he also wrote, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Maybe we just discovered why Paul received so much criticism. Because a message like that about weakness, Christ as a suffering servant, was countercultural to that day, just like it's countercultural in our day. So, how did Paul respond to this Corinthian church, all these? critiques and criticism and allegations. This is where he begins his defense of his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. Our reading for this week in the devotion, Paul's defending himself, but he starts in the very first verse, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, parakaleo is the Greek word, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid, when face to face with you, but bold to you when far away. He's kind of making a joke about what they were saying about him being a nothing burger in person. I appeal to you, parakaleo. The verb parakaleo is one commonly used by someone who has the authority to do something, to command, but he doesn't use it. He has the authority as the apostle, perhaps the chief apostle, to do something, but he chooses not to. This is an amazing example of criticism where Paul begins with a warning, but it's a warning phrased in terms of a request, not a command. It's not a command. Paul is actually practicing what he preached in the Corinthian church. He's practicing what he preached also in the Galatians. When he told the Galatians about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The word patience or forbearance, it's translated, is a word that describes the ability and authority to compel, but instead chooses not to. This is a word used in the ancient Greek often about a ruler, and rulers often compelled and forced and did things like this. This is so different in this usage in the fruits of the Spirit. What we see is a Christian servant in leadership that servant, a servant heart is not command and control, but servanthood and weakness and appealing to them in patience and forbearance. This is the strength of ideas in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The arguments Paul references in this, these two verses are ideas, beliefs, and assumptions. They could be ways of thinking. And learning from criticism that leads to growth is a never-ending process of tearing down and rebuilding how the Lord works with us and tears down different assumptions and beliefs and ideas and rebuilds and we learn and we grow and we walk in the fruits of the Spirit. Have you ever met somebody that's arrived that doesn't do that tearing down and rebuilding? A person that's arrived that doesn't need criticism. Paul says there are weapons of this world, fleshly weapons and divine weapons. Let's look at some of those fleshly weapons and divine weapons. In our lives day to day, there's probably not a day that goes by where we're not criticized in some way or some of us have, if we're parents, we have to criticize if we're Bosses or supervisors, sometimes we have to be on the giving end of criticism. So there's many varieties of criticism. Here's one painful letter or a painful visit, just like Paul experienced. This is an example of perhaps in a painful letter or a painful visit when we're with someone. Perhaps it's a family member. Um, and these are some examples of weapons of the flesh or weapons of the world that Paul says we don't use these. One is ad hominem. When we use, um, this means literally against the man, it's very persuasive, but it's a personal attack 
about something that might actually be true about the person, but it ignores all the facts, all the evidence, and it uh, uh, might have a speck of truth in it. For an example, when they accused Paul and said, you never come when you say you will because you're irresponsible. That's an ad hominem attack. Another uh, weapon of the flesh is changing the meaning of words. In criticism, changing the meaning of the words or straw arguments are, are a weapon of the flesh. Twisting words that create confusion and not clarity, that distract shouting or shaming. A weapon of the flesh. And the goal sometimes with some people that are criticizing or engaged in criticism or fault-finding They want to win the argument at all costs. They'll use these different weapons of the flesh and what they end up doing is losing the friend. Annual review. This is something that um, happens oftentimes in some workplaces where you sit down with a supervisor or a boss and you look ahead and you look behind what things did you do that really worked well and how can you improve here and there. And Sometimes uh, these things are based on um, uh, help you get raises. And uh, annual reviews are criticism that comes often from a boss or even a coworker. One time, uh, I heard in a marriage seminar, a person, uh, a husband came home from work, and he had an annual review waiting for him. His wife had a list of things. These are things, honey, that... I think you can do better. And she did an annual review on her husband and actually turned out quite well. And, and uh, the speaker was talking about how that's, that can be quite helpful. Using Paul's words, though, and his example, the, the um, divine power that Paul talks about or divine weapons, the weapons that we use are certainly the fruits of the Spirit, but also humility and ideas and arguments and evidence and calmness and courtesy. And I can't emphasize enough the fruits of the Spirit. And in fact, several months ago when we talked about the fruits of the Spirit, these are things that we don't put on, like Paul doesn't command the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. He says, put on Christ and walk in the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit just will grow, they'll flourish in the Christian life. These particular ones, patience and kindness, are so helpful when it comes to criticism, both giving and receiving. Friend wounds. This is really hard. When a friend confronts us, or if you're a friend and you have to do the confronting, or husbands and wives, when you get criticism from somebody you love, It's a hard, hard thing. In Proverbs it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It's really important to remember that the Lord can speak and often does speak through friends. Another important one is judging appearances. Sometimes good and helpful criticism can come from places that we least expected, unlikely places. So don't be deceived by appearances. 
With criticism, don't necessarily write off the source because remember, God spoke to Balaam through a donkey and God spoke to David through the Philistines. So do you ever have a Philistine speak to you in your life? So look beyond the critic and ask, God, what are you speaking to me? Or could you even be speaking to me in this? Is there a germ of truth, a grain of truth in this? It's important in judging appearances to assess the intention of the giver of criticism also. This is important because sometimes, as we've all experienced, somebody giving criticism can be speaking out of their own pain, out of their own woundedness. Sometimes hurt people hurt people. And when criticism is involved, it's always important to evaluate the intention of the giver. And also evaluating the nature of the criticism, being wise. You know, ask the Lord for spirit-led discernment and wisdom. And it's also helpful when criticism comes to assume you are wrong and the critic is right. What if what they said was completely true? And looking for that grain of truth It's also helpful in delaying a reaction until emotions are under control. Timing is often so, so very important in giving and receiving criticism. This one, the look, is one of my favorites because it's used commonly in school. Any school teachers here, they even teach the look in some uh, ed- educational psychology classes and undergraduate training, the look is nonverbal communication, nonverbal criticism. So you can be on a playground, and my wife has seen this many times in her school, or in a classroom, and all it takes without singling out or embarrassing a student is just the look. And it might not be a scowl, it might not be angry, it's just this look. And it's something that teachers work on the look because it's a really great way of non-verbally communicating. Sometimes we see the look between spouses and even between parents and children. A very non-verbal means of criticism. The rebuke, Paul talks about rebuke a couple of times in his letter. This is when criticism might seem a little bit harsh. It says in Proverbs fifteen thirty two, those who disregard discipline despise themselves. But one who heeds correction, heeds correction, gains understanding. So, of course, back in um, the Old Testament, Rebuke was very often used by a lot of the prophets. Ophi, this is kind of a fun one because Ophi is an opportunity for improvement. So instead of a criticism or coming off as harsh, you give a suggestion or feedback. And sometimes it's helpful to soften criticism. And you'll notice that Paul does this in other letters too, where he might not be coming down kind of hard. He sometimes comes down harsh as a rebuke. And it's often, you know, you can see from the context, it's very necessary. 
but sometimes an ophi, an opportunity for criticism where it's softened is very helpful. A lot of times we call that feedback. Time out, a really important one, where sometimes a timeout can save a life. In hospitals, before a surgical suite staff begin a surgery, they have a timeout. They've been doing this for years. It's part of the Joint Commission protocol where everybody steps back from the top surgeon all the way down to the newest person on the team, and they have a timeout. And it's an opportunity to say, Do we have the right patient? Do we have the right site? Do we have the right procedure to make sure everything is right? Because you never want a never event, wrong site, wrong procedure, wrong patient error. Those things are things you never want to see in healthcare. And a timeout is an opportunity for anybody on that team, even the lowliest person, to criticize and say, you know, this patient's name, let's just make sure. Time out. Correction. Course corrections in our lives sometimes come from from different people. Sometimes they come abruptly where we're criticized. Um, John Vandervoort is another overseer at Jacob's Well Church. He's a dad. He's a husband. He's a flight instructor. He has his own plane. Um, He's also a bass player in the worship band. Um, You see him on um, some Sundays and taking a short break right now. But he's also a drug dealer. Uh, He deals drugs, has more customers in the Chippewa Valley community, Chippewa Falls and Eau Claire, than probably any other drug dealer. He's a pharmacist. He works for two hospitals. So John Vandervoort was telling me a story um, about an air traffic controller that just broke through the radio silence and said, can you tell me your altitude? And the problem was the plane that was flying at a certain altitude was slowly descending 4,000 feet. And it had to make a course correction to get back up into that area because with airplanes, it's not like you know when we drive cars and we stay in our lane Altitude is important, and you have to stay in your altitude in order to be safe. Sometimes a course correction in our life is necessary. Something for our own good, something for the best good of our loved ones and family. Course corrections sometimes can come abruptly out of the blue and kind of shock us and be a little bit disturbing. But it's always important to remember Is this the Lord speaking? Could this course correction be something I need to listen to? Can you say next steps? (laughs) I knew you could. Um, Some of the next steps that I wanted to just mention are the prayer room, of course. If there's criticism that wounded or caused some pain, or something that, that is just kind of simmering, something that really bothering you, and you just feel like you need to share it with somebody, need to have someone pray for you. The prayer room is open right after the services. People there to pray for you. Or if you need prayer for healing, the prayer room is available. 
name it. Sometimes we fear criticism, we cringe, we don't like to receive it, or we can't even bear to give it when it's necessary. Name it. Naming it as fear and remembering that the Lord didn't give us a spirit of fear, that we have boldness in Christ. It's often helpful to name Meditating on the fruits of the Spirit. This is a big one in giving and receiving criticism. And Paul just so aptly sums it up in Galatians. It's just a perfect place to meditate and pray and just ask the Lord, you know, I need more patience. I need more gentleness or self-control. And meditating on the fruits of the Spirit is really helpful. The devotion for this week covers 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. And this is the part where Paul talks about criticizing the people that were critiquing him. Um, The devotion also is something very helpful to look at in, in terms of criticism being worth it. Small group, this is super important with criticism because sometimes we need other people to help us evaluate and to figure out is this really from the Lord what does it mean to me should I even listen to this is it valid or is it something I shouldn't even respond to small groups are really helpful to have people in your life to be able to speak to to pray with and to help discern Reading through the Proverbs, there's so much in the wisdom literature that's helpful in understanding how to deal with criticism. Right now, media, if you put the word criticism in the search bar, there's like four or five different short videos and and workbook studies that come up. They're all fabulous. I looked at them all, and they're terrific. Right now, media. Lastly, When criticism comes along, sometimes it's startling, it comes out of the blue, sometimes it's a painful letter, communication, or phone call. You know, a good question to ask is, could this be holy ground? Could this be the Lord using these words that are not spoken well, they're not spoken in the right tone of voice, Could this be holy ground where the Lord's actually trying to speak to me about something? Fred Rogers, when he talked about his Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Program for for kids, he described that area in front of the television set as holy ground. Because he said his words are just like dross. They're worthless. But the Holy Spirit could use those words in those kids' lives and whatever thing they might be struggling with at their developmental level of two or three or four or five. And the Lord could use those words just like the Lord used the words of that preacher in that pulpit that just wasn't very good. Holy ground. Sometimes we can be on holy ground. Always anticipate and ask. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the chance to look at Paul and what he says to us about criticism. Help us not to fear because we know we don't have a spirit of fear. 
Lord, help us to have expectation, too, that every day, probably, of our lives, things come along in forms of criticism, but you give us boldness, Lord, and you just give us your Holy Spirit that can take words that maybe aren't spoken in the best way or the best tone of voice or very eloquently by a speaker, but you can still use them. Thank you, Lord, for using those in our lives. Amen.